Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian, and Dan's here with me. Hey, Brian. Hey, listeners. How's it going? Hey. Okay. We've got a film to discuss, as we always do, here in episode 92. I thought this time around I'd keep our discussion of Brendan Fraser going. So it's our phrase phase. <laughs> I feel like we could pretty easily do a whole Brendan Fraser theme month had we gone that route. Yeah. I mean, after I put this one on, I was getting all kinds of other recommendations for like ones I hadn't even heard of before. So if you were to assign one more Brendan Fraser pick, what would it be if we were to go on beyond this episode? So one that always intrigued me, or at least ever since I heard of it, is this comedy from 1994 called Airheads. And it's it's like a heavy metal band, but I think they're really stupid or something. And the, it stars Brendan Fraser and co-stars Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi with performances from David Arquette, Chris Farley. And I thought that that sounded very intriguing. Just the, from the cast alone. And Brendan Fraser's got like a, a long mop of hair in that one. Um, but there's a few for me, for sure. There's also one from 1999 that's called Blast from the Past. And I don't know much about it, but I get the sense that it's like a time travel rom-com of some sort. Well, that's the one that I was going to pick because it's about him growing up in a Cold War bunker. And then being re released, emerging from the bunker in 1999 as a 35-year-old. And he has Cold War sensibilities. That, that has promise. So, a fish out of water. It sounds interesting. I would watch it. Apparently, he was in the Oscar Best Picture winner, Crash. At least according to his credits. I was looking at it. He's, he's pretty low on the... Oh, wait, no. He's not actually pretty low. So, he plays a character in that. I thought that was a pretty bad movie, a pretty stupid movie. That's what I've heard. I mean, people usually only mention that one in the breath of expressing that Brokeback Mountain was snubbed, but I don't know much about Crash itself. I always get it confused with Crank, but Buzzed On Movies did an episode about Crank, and that's a different film. Oh, yeah. Man, those movies are wild. Crank and Crank 2. But no Brendan Fraser in those, alas. Unfortunately. I, I, who is that? Jason Statham? Yeah. What about uh, Looney Tunes Back in Action? Did you ever see that one? No. Uh, that one, very unknown to me. I remember seeing the trailer, but that's it. Yeah, so that does the Who Framed Roger Rabbit thing of having live action characters on the same screen as animated characters and is directed by Joe Dante, who I've only seen one movie by him, and that's The Burbs, which I told you that I really loved. He also directed the Gremlins movies. He did one of the segments in the Twilight Zone movie. A few others. I might pull in a Joe Dante movie at some point. But I remember liking Looney Tunes back in action. But I saw it like when it came out around 2003. So I don't know how much my, that opinion would carry over to 2022. Sure. I think that's going to be a theme of our discussion today is sometimes the way that you feel about a movie when you first watch it you feel differently years later. Interesting. Okay. And 
Actually, we haven't said the title of our featured films this go-around, but we are taking a look at Bedazzled, both the original and the remake. The first one was a British film that was released in 1967, directed by Stanley Donan, and the one that I knew about and came to mind when I put this episode together was the Harold Ramis version, the remake from 2000. Harold Ramis, also the director of movies like Groundhog Day. Did he direct Ghostbusters? No, I thought that too, but that's someone else. I'm going to look that up. But he's in Ghostbusters. Yeah, he appears in Ghostbusters, but he doesn't actually direct it. It's directed by Ivan Reitman. And so I first saw Bedazzled 2000 on TV, and I think I must have been like 13 or something. And I didn't see the whole thing. I tuned in like a third of the way through. I was wondering, what are some other films that come to mind for you, Dan, in terms of ones you first experienced on television? Oh, man. It's a fine line for me between what's what did my parents get on VHS and what was on television. Like, I'm not sure I would be able to clearly differentiate those experiences. Um, definitely A Few Good Men I saw on TV. And I really love that movie, especially, obviously, the last 20 minutes of that movie. And my dad got obsessed with it when we saw it on TV. And he would he next time it came on, he taped it. And then he just played the last 20 minutes, like once a week for the next year. So I pretty much have the the final scene of that movie memorized. I don't know. Uh, I can't say that I spent too much time browsing like HBO or even like Turner Classic Movies or anything that was just, uh, you know, streaming feature length films. You didn't even call it streaming then, I guess. <laughs> what about you? Well, for me... Obviously, we've talked many a time about DCOMs, Disney Channel original movies made for television. And I've had some other examples like that. Obviously, Taurus Trap from uh, quite a while back. And uh, in the Taurus Trap episode, we talked about programs like Dinner and a Movie on TBS, where it was like a cooking show and they would also show a film. I remember watching Harry and the Hendersons on that program, a movie about Bigfoot. But there's a few others, even big name theatrical releases. One day that is like pivotal in my movie watching experience is I tuned into AMC one day. I think I was 16 and Forrest Gump was on, which I had never seen. And so for like three hours, I watched that or even longer because, of course, on AMC, there's commercials. Might have been four hours. And then as that was wrapping up, it said, and coming up next... Titanic, <laughs> which I had never seen. So I thought, oh, huh, I'll watch that one, too, for another four hours. And both movies that I fell in love with. And yeah, formative day. Yeah, wow. That is a marathon session of movie watching. And of course, sometimes the movies that you watch on TV turn out to be a little bit different than the original release. What do they say? Modified to fit your screen. Edited for content. Right. Like, one that is really striking is Back to the Future. There's actually a lot of potty mouth in Back to the Future, and when it's on TV, it's, like, very choppy. I recall when I was in high school and the streaming era had not yet quite taken over, um, but there was still, like, internet joking about movies. It became an obsession of 
what are like the dumbest and most ridiculous overdubs of curse words. And the the one that everybody loved, of course, was from Snakes on a Plane. I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane became I've had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane, which I thought was a pretty good bit of invention. It's it's like the kids bop experience, you know, R- really bizarre. There's a couple in Back to the Future when he's like, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious stuff. <laughs> or in Back to the Future 3, when he doesn't go out for the showdown in the street, he's like, he's an asshole. But he's like, he's an idiot. <laughs> very choppy, very apparent, the artifice. But this was one of the movies, Bedazzled, that I first saw on television. And I never quite forgot it. I only recently learned that it was a remake of an older movie, but... I can't imagine why a 13-year-old boy would have trouble forgetting Bedazzled. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're on to something. But this story is full of common tropes, mostly because it's an adaptation of the Faust legend, the deal-with-the-devil tale, where someone sells their soul in exchange for something they really want and kick the can down the road in terms of having to pay for what they get. So what are some other versions of Faust that you've seen or read, Dan? Yeah, I thought a little bit about this. And isn't there a Goosebumps book about that? I could have sworn that, that like this blew my mind when I when I read a Goosebumps book about making wishes, but the wishes turn out bad or something. Oh, actually, now that you say that, I think there is one called Be Careful What You Wish For. Mm, okay, that's got to be With like it. a crystal ball on the cover. I haven't read all of them, but now that does ring a bell. I have them all, by the way. I have a bookshelf. You have all the Goosebumps? With every Goosebumps, yes. Have you, you saw the movie, right? Yes. Jack Black. Right, right. Of course I saw it. Score by Danny Elfman. It was actually a lot better than I thought it might be. Huh. Pretty good. It reminded me of like Jumanji from back in the day because the premise. Oh, actually, that movie stars Dylan Minnette, who we recently talked about in Scream 5. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. But Dylan Minnette stumbles into R.L. Stein's house and comes across like a magic typewriter and from the typewriter releases all the monsters from the Goosebump books. And then he has to go around with R.L. Stein, who's played by Jack Black, and they have to round up the creatures. It felt a lot like Jumanji. Wow. That's interesting. I, I actually have a very specific memory linked to a Goosebumps book. I don't know what Goosebumps book it was, but I was in maybe, man, it must have been, it was definitely before fourth grade. It was probably in the realm of like second grade. I was reading a Goosebumps book and I had mental pictures of the main characters. And I went to school one day and I was sitting in the cafeteria. I can still envision this cafeteria at my very first elementary school. And I saw across the room a girl who is exactly who I had envisioned this character being. And I wanted to like run up to her and be like, oh, my God, you're the girl from the book. And then it like occurred to me like a half second later. Wait, no, it's probably the reverse. Probably when I was reading this book, that girl who I had previously seen in the cafeteria popped into my head. Either the, either way, though, a weird thing to run up and announce. Yeah, seriously. But I've had similar experiences. 
I, I think it is interesting to think about how we picture the scenes in a book. Right. And how we can picture ourselves as characters in the book and what we would do. And pertinent to that, one version of Faust that I have watched is the Wishbone episode back in the day. Mm. We, we talked Wishbone back in our Sleepy Hollow episode. The Legend of Creepy Collars or something like that. Yeah, terrible title. <laughs> also, as we said, I think the title card on the episode literally just says Legend of Sleepy Hollow. So somebody in the VHS department came up with that. But I, I have a lot of respect for Wishbone, even though it's a bizarre concept. If you've never seen it, it's a Jack Russell Terrier dog envisioning himself in the role of a protagonist in a work of classic literature. And in a half hour, you have like an adaptation of some famous work, but also this parallel story taking place in 90s American suburbia, and it cuts back and forth between the two tales. So really, it gives these famous narratives really, really short shrift. But I like it. I think it's a great way to introduce literature to kids, and I still get Jeopardy answers that I learned from Wishbone. Nice. And anyway, the Faust episode is one of the creepier ones. They did some pretty serious stuff, to quote Doc Brown, <laughs> on Wishbone. You know, they had a Frankenstein episode where they're stitching together corpses, and they had a Tale of Two Cities where a guy gets guillotined. But Faust was kind of a spooky one because the devil shows up. And I'll never forget, he shows up in the burst of flames. He says, I am Mephisto. And it plays this creepy organ chord very memorable so i did go back and revisit that one. Oh, nice yeah and you see a lot of faust specifics in this structure of bedazzled uh and i mean we'll talk a few other genie story examples anytime that somebody makes a wish to improve their lives and they have to deal with unexpected consequences very common you see it all the time and it always plays out more or less the same so not too much fresh ground being trod here so you like donuts eh we'll have all the donuts in the world <laughs> it might be my favorite faust uh, riff <laughs> yeah but faust specifically it's like a lonely dude who wants to not be lonely and the devil says that he can help with that so I came across a Wikipedia article in researching this episode. There's actually an entry for something called quibble. And a quibble is a plot device that refers to ironic twists that arise when the character makes a wish and things take a dark turn. The best example I think of is the monkey's paw short story, also adapted on The Simpsons. Right. Where it's like the family gets the monkey's paw that'll grant their wishes and they wish to be really rich. And then the son dies and they get an insurance payout. And it like always goes goes darkly wrong. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this as the story goes along, because that's the whole thrust of the film. But in some ways, I like this trope. In other ways, I find it obnoxious. <laughs> Bye. My one other quibble work of media that has really stuck with me from when I was a kid is I read a fantasy book called Half Magic. And the premise of that is the characters got some sort of device 
that they make a wish and the wish is exactly half granted. So they had to come up with clever ways to try and work around this limitation. So you got to wish for two ponies. Yeah. Like one is at one point they wish that their cat would talk and then they wanted to undo that. And so they're like, well, we just wanted to go back to saying meow, meow. And someone said, I know. I wish our cat would say music. And then the cat just started saying sick, sick, sick. And I thought that was pretty funny little gag on it. Although at the end, it got kind of lazy because when he reached the climax, they they needed to wish something and they would just say, I wish for this, but double that. And then it would happen. It's like, no, you got to work around. You can't just say, but double that. If you're going to make this an interesting concept, you got to like force us to reckon with the very premise of it. But anyways, I'm going off on a tangent here. Yeah. No, I also think of an episode of Rick and Morty where the devil comes to town and he's giving everybody cursed objects that grant dark versions of their wishes. And then Rick, since he's a mad scientist, he just engineers out whatever the flaw is. And so then everybody just has great, amazing lives <laughs> and the devil is shaking his fist. So shall we dive into the meat of these stories? Yeah. All right. So we watched both of them, obviously. One is older. It's British. But beyond that, the plots are pretty similar. I was actually surprised how much was borrowed almost verbatim between them. Mm -hmm. Though there are some interesting differences. So um, when you picked this, this movie, one thing I sometimes do when we have a movie on the horizon is I look up the DVD to see what the special features are that are available on that DVD. And I saw that there was a special edition of the bedazzled 2000 movie, but I couldn't find a picture of the back of the DVD. So I didn't know what special features it had, but I, I gleaned from some Googling that it had a commentary. So I ordered it. And when it arrived, it actually has two commentaries. This does not seem like a movie worth having two separate commentary tracks on it. One of them was by Harold Ramis, and uh, the other one was by Elizabeth Hurley and one of the producers named Trevor Albert. And I actually listened to both commentary tracks. So this was a, a three-peater for me, or I guess four if you count the 1967 version too. So I'll sprinkle in my, my notes on the commentaries as we go through as well. The Harold Ramis one was really illuminating. The Trevor Albert and Elizabeth Hurley one was very not illuminating. So uh, I, not too many notes from that one, but longtime listeners will know that Dan is a overachiever, but we love him for it. I'm interested to hear what you learned. But yeah, the broad arc is pretty similar between the two movies and we'll kind of point out differences as they arise. But the movies open up with a protagonist who is dweeby and lonely, doesn't have any friends, doesn't he? doesn't have any partner and this is very faustian in the british original from 1967 his name is stanley and he's played by dudley moore and in the newer one his name is elliot played by brendan fraser have you seen dudley moore in anything else that's a good question i don't not to my knowledge i didn't i didn't dive too deep in it um i did read about comedy team behind this effort some but do you have any specific touchstones yeah so just recently my dad played one 
that was on like Amazon Prime or something, a recommended free movie. And it was called Mickey and Maud. And it's about Dudley Moore accidentally becoming married to two women and how he deals with that. I don't know. He just always seems like a scumbag. He, I mean, in that one, the angle is that, like, he's a okay person who has legitimately stumbled into this. But, I don't know. He just always seems kind of unseemly. That one was from a little later. It says 1984. Interesting, yeah. He died pretty young, actually. I think he was a lifelong alcoholic, according to his Wikipedia article. Oh, dang. Um, but the this team... So uh, Peter Cook is going to be the other co-star in Dudley Moore. Apparently they had a whole brand of satirical, almost like vaudevillian sketches that were a TV show, but then also got made into a handful of movies. And this being the most famous of those. Yeah, I think I read that at least one of the sketches pops up pretty much as a carbon copy in this film. Gotcha. But this dude doesn't have any friends. So these guys don't have any friends, and they're also both struggling with an unrequited crush on a coworker, or just an unspoken crush. They've never approached the object of their affections. Stanley works as a fry cook. This is the guy in the British one, Dudley Moore. And he has a crush on the waitress at the restaurant, who's a girl named Margaret. And what do we think of the casting for Margaret? British standards of beauty seem very different to me. <laughs> than American standards of beauty. She didn't wasn't the type of figure that inspired like that sort of adoration from afar that I typically think of in a unrequited love situation. Exactly. So we're maybe going to sound totally like a neckbeard meme, but this person does not seem like the one you would idolize and put on a pedestal. She just seems kind of normal. She's very much taller than he is like a full head taller and she has odd makeup it's just this thick like purple under eye makeup and an odd hairdo so it just it felt like an odd beginning and as the wish scenarios take place and they dress her up differently it it changes things a little but i was struck by that starting out yeah we'll get more into it but Everyone in the cast of both of these movies basically has to do a lot because they're going to be doing a wide variety of stuff. And in that regard, I thought actually both casts were fairly solid just in like hitting the different beats and sketches and stuff that we're, we're going to talk about. So, you know, I don't think she turned in a bad performance, but I, I don't think she, she captures the essence of what, at least at the start of what that character is supposed to be. It's a funny thing about uh, you mentioning that he's short. Apparently, like a key part of the comedy of these two characters is that, like I said, British standards of beauty, I don't understand. But apparently he's supposed to be ugly and short and the other guy is supposed to be tall and handsome. I think they both just look like dudes. So, you know, I don't know. But definitely he's like he's probably shorter than me. I don't know. I could look up and I'm not a tall dude at all. So, um yeah, I think that's definitely like part of making him seem more pathetic. It's just how he's shrimpy and, and he kind of uh -huh. slouches into it, you know. And this fast food restaurant that they work at apparently is a British fast food chain that's actually called Wimpy. Mm. It might be borrowed from Popeye. 
If I had to guess, there's a character on Popeye named Wimpy who's always eating hamburgers. But perhaps a fitting name for somewhere that this character would work. Nice, yeah. Elliot, on the other hand, from the 2000 version, works at a computer company called Cynodyne. And the way that the logo is really emphasizes the sin in Cynodyne, because obviously he's going to get tangled up with the devil. But it's an example of how the 2000 movie is updated to seem very turn of the millennium. Have to work in, you know, the, the tech bubble. Right. This is only a year after Office Space. And it feels like, what's that? In a tech, I think it's called an office space. Feels like a, a clone of Inatech here. This cubicle space with everybody looking real dweeby who's hired there. Nowadays, you know, they're the ones making all the money, but they were the dweebs back in 1999. I guess they still are the dweebs. Yeah, it's just dweebs with money. Yeah. And the coworker that Elliot has a crush on is named Allison. Yeah, so this actress, one of the things I learned from the, the Harold Ramis commentary is um, she's actually an Australian actress who had recently done some TV costume dramas. So they went in with apparently not the highest expectations for her audition because it's, you know, it's a comedy role. And uh, but she won out and, uh, you know, I think she's fine here. But to me, it, this is like custom made for year 2000 Jennifer Love Hewitt, who just needs to like give off this radiance but also softness and like this inviting appeal i think they missed they should have cast jennifer love hewitt in, in this role and what are some other examples of things that jennifer love hewitt has been in um so she was one of the what's the name of the a christmas carol the bell is but i think Belle's not the original one what's her name her name normally the one that scrooge like it away no, it is Belle. Okay. Normally. Yeah, but in the, the 2004 one with Frasier, not Brendan Frasier, uh, the other Frasier. What's that actress name? Kelsey Grammer. Yeah, Kelsey Grammer as Scrooge. She plays the the one that Scrooge like it away. I think she has a different name in that one. Yeah, I believe she was Emily in that one. Okay. She also was in the horror series. I know what you did last summer and the teen comedy film Can't Hardly Wait are the things that I know her from. Okay. The 2000 version is set in San Francisco, like George of the Jungle was. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Whoa. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Maybe Brendan Frazier likes San Francisco. But things aren't going well for these characters. And Stanley actually attempts to hang himself in his bathroom. But when he strings up the noose, it breaks his pipes. And so then he's just standing there getting wet. And in strides the devil, as portrayed by Peter Cook. Dan mentioned that they were comedy partners around this time. And Peter Cook actually wrote the movie, which is kind of cool. And it, I don't know. He's tall. He's kind of sharply dressed. And he has these like horn rimmed glasses that he wears. Classic British look, yeah. Right. I was thinking about how this was like contemporaneous with the Beatles. 1967 and Dan you know more about the Beatles than I do but I was just thinking of the whole like mod scene 60s England yeah origins of James Bond all of that yeah there's a little it's not like a full out hair shag but it's got a little mop to it 
you know? Definitely some of that. Like, you look at the, I don't know, the interior decoration struck me as very 60s and I thought maybe 70s, but obviously it predates the 70s. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking about how in the Jungle Book from 1966, they made the vultures look like the Beatles and just how much of a timely reference that was at the time. Like, it, it's just a good thing that the Beatles had staying power and we still know who they were, you know? <laughs> like, right. I mean, what would the equivalent be today? You make a movie and somebody looks like, I don't know, the music personage du jour. Right. It's like all the stuff that Robin Williams was doing in Aladdin. How many kids these days know who Rodney Dangerfield is? Probably not too many. Right. Man, if you go on like BuzzFeed or anything that's got a list of all the different impressions he does in that movie, some of them are really out there. Like the, uh, there's one who was like an evangelist or something, a, a right wing orator guy. The, I think it's the one where he says, a few provisos, a few quid pro quos. <laughs> and it's like, nobody is going to know that. You got, you got to read like an encyclopedia to get it all. <laughs> You need like a crib sheet, yeah. But in 2000, Brendan has this posse of co-workers that don't like him at all. He is a big dork. I don't think I'd seen like the first 15 minutes of this movie before. I think I tuned in just past that point around when he's making his first wish. But there's like this trio or group of four co-workers that he interacts with at the job and they're going to keep coming back in the different universes like Wizard of Oz style. It's funny you mentioned that because Ramis said that he was directly inspired by Wizard of Oz. He, he liked from the original the, the bits where the actors reappeared and the different sketches and he really wanted to lean into that. So they actually spent a really long time casting the co-workers. I don't know if you recognized any of them. One of them was the... I think he's the black guy who goes door to door in office space or something. I knew I recognized from something. Okay, I was going to say I did recognize the black coworker, although I wasn't able to place from what. He has distinctive eyes. But the other one that's really interesting that you you couldn't have paid me, you could have given me a thousand guesses and I wouldn't have pulled it, but the woman, so not, not the unrequited crush, but there's another woman there. Um, she was in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which actually had not yet filmed and was just a play at that point. And in the commentary, they mentioned, oh, and she was, she's been on this off-Broadway play called Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So here she, she appears here, and then a year later, she would be in the film version. Oh, wow. Yidzak, who is one of the girlfriends of, of Hedwig at one point. Right. Or boyfriend. I wasn't really sure because... Like, Hedwig is doing her thing, and then Yitzhak has, like, a mustache, but I think that it's an actress playing the role, so hard to say. Oh, good call on that, yeah. Yeah. And then before we, we jump in, one other tidbit here that just to me colors my whole perception of the 2000 Bedazzled is I noticed it even before the commentary. I mean, Harold Ramis made Groundhog Day, which is one of my favorite movies, one of the tour de goods that we've given on this podcast. And uh, I think there's a lot of comparisons there where it's like a character who's trying to reckon with the ethics of the world. 
And I wondered if that was like an intentional thing to like kind of almost not redo Groundhog Day, but but like kind of do a similar thing where you have a high concept and try to like tackle an ethical conundrum in that. And he did say that that was intentional. Harold Ramis did in his commentary. But um, I think that makes it look even worse, like it makes the, the movie look even worse because there's <laughs> really not much depth to it. And you don't ever really get a sense of Brendan Fraser. Like you said that he is a dork, but he is a dork. But he's also like, is he an asshole? Kind of. Sometimes some scenes he is and some he isn't. Is he like socially inept or just kind of awkward or just kind of a jerk? Not clear. I felt like they didn't really pin down his character in a meaningful way prior to the start of the shenanigans. Right. I would say a couple things to that. Seeing the first act of this film definitely brought it down in my estimation. Once I tuned in the first time and was just in the midst of the wacky action, I was enjoying it a fair bit. But we'll see what rating I ultimately give it. And you're right, it suffers in comparison to Groundhog Day. I only knew this time around that Harold Ramis directed this. And yeah, it's like Groundhog Day if it kept missing the mark. If it just kept not operating on all cylinders. Right. One more tidbit on that that I thought just in retrospect sounds really stupid is he said that he wanted to do another one of of these types of movies after he read some articles about how in the wake of Columbine, teens did not know what sort of identity they should have. Was it still okay to be a jock? Was it still okay to be a nerd? Everything had been turned upside down by in teen culture by Columbine. And he wanted to make a movie so that teens could understand that you could be whatever version of yourself you want and, and just be, be a selfless good person. And if that was his intention, zero of that conveyed in the final film. So wait, that movie actually got made? That, no, Harold Ramis, that was his inspiration for making Bedazzled. What? what? <laughs> this one? That was, it, that idea led to this? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did not understand that. That was not conveyed. I mean, I can kind of see that in the different versions, obviously, Brendan Fraser wears a lot of costumes in this movie. Let's say that. And so, yeah, I guess different, the same person in different identities that they're trying on like costumes, mm-hmm. maybe, but it has nothing to do with high school. And most of the roles that he plays here, I would not call a subculture. Like you can be a jock and a nerd and a skater, but you can't opt to be Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> the people aren't, you know, the kids aren't going around in stovepipe hats. Maybe they should be. Maybe that's a takeaway from Bedazzle. Bring back the Lincoln beard. But I guess let's talk a little bit more about what specifically happens because, yeah, the devil has approached Stanley and when Elliot leaves work and goes to the bar afterwards, he runs into this group of co-workers who had told him they weren't doing anything that night. They were all going to go home, but here they are hanging out without him. And he's snubbed. And then he too gets approached by the devil. But here we see what's new in 2000 Bedazzled because they made the devil a woman. And not just any woman. She's played by Elizabeth Hurley. Yeah, he she was dating Hugh Grant and was like a in all the tabloids um, and was primarily known as a model at the time. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've seen her other places, but as you said, I definitely remembered her from this one. Yeah. So if you ever go to like Reddit or Twitter and see threads, what was the moment that you had your sexual awakening as a person? And you will inevitably see some people saying, watching Elizabeth Hurley in Bedazzled from 2000. And I mean, I think she pretty easily tops the list of like most beautiful women, at least performances that we have seen on the goods. It, sorry, Kimberly from Power Rangers, you booted off the list. I'm, I'm going to be horny on Maine here for a moment. But man, they really nailed it. And she's like really funny, too. She's the only thing that really made me laugh in this movie, I have to say, except for a couple of moments. Yeah, I mean, she might be the best performance across both versions. And man, the outfits they have for her, are, they, they put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, a, a whole bunch of costume changes. And I mean, it's, you know, you got the evening wear and you got the like leather for a motorbike. And then she's popping up as different characters, too. And so it's like the basically every slutty Halloween costume. Yeah, that, that's basically it, right? Cheerleader. The policewoman. And, nurse. Right. Teacher. Yeah. And... The, of the two commentaries, Harold Ramis has some restraint. He's like, and yeah, of course, Elizabeth Hurley, legendarily beautiful woman. And that's basically all he says about it. And then <laughs> in the other one with this producer, Trevor Albert, he's just a relentlessly horny the whole time. He's like, oh, man. And he's the one who's actually in the booth with Elizabeth Hurley, right? Yeah, although it's like mixed weird. It sounds like they're supposed to be in the same room. But if she reacts to anything he says... It got like cut out or something like that. Like I, she doesn't really reply to him at all when he, when he makes his thirst remarks. She's probably used to it, to be honest. But the devil offers the protagonist seven wishes. So more than the standard three that you might get with a genie. And this is also part of Faust. I mean, he makes multiple wishes. Finite, but more than three. And it's in exchange, of course, for the protagonist's soul. You got to sign the contract in blood and... They're going to claim you in the hereafter. You got to go spend eternity in hell. Both movies have a joke about, well, what does that actually mean if I lose my soul? And have kind of a gag where the devil just kind of shrugs it off. But I think it's to the detriment of both films that it doesn't really ever have an answer for that question. Like, what is the consequence of this trade-off? Right. We don't get much in terms of seeing the horrors of hell. But... I guess that's in service of keeping it a comedy. I did like some of what Peter Cook was doing. Like, I thought that got a little bit more philosophical. Him talking about being a fallen angel and what led him to distance himself from God and a, a holy life. Because he's like, well, when you're an angel, all there is to do is dance around and praise God. But, you know, what if you want some praise for yourself? What if you want to do your own thing for a little while? That's vilified. Yeah. So a little thoughtful. I, I kind of liked Peter Cook's performance. Yeah, he was pretty good. Not as good. memorable as Elizabeth Hurley. But, you know, if not for him and his writing, we wouldn't have either movie. Right, right. Both of the devils run nightclubs. And the 60s one is, like, staffed by embodiments of the seven deadly sins. Sloth. Oh, I hate that pronunciation. <laughs> I wonder if that's actually the way they commonly say it. 
Or they're just screwing with Americans. Yeah. Although I guess Elizabeth Hurley, who's British, did say it the same way. So I guess it's authentic. Seems weird. But this was kind of like, if you've ever seen the anime Full Metal Alchemist, that has embodiments of the sins. I was also thinking of a time when I was staying with a group in college, seven people in a house, and we had to come up with a theme costume, and I pitched seven deadly sins nice so in that case i was wrath i basically had like a guy fieri shirt Uh with flames on it and then yeah we had them all we had uh pride who like carried around a mirror and uh, envy was good because he was just walking around telling everybody how much better he thought their costumes were (laughs) pretty pretty funny This movie does about as good a job with that as our theme costume, I think. Uh, This is not preserved in the 2000 version, but I like the nightclub in the 2000 version because when they first go in and the devil is escorting Elliot, Brendan Fraser, he's like mobbed by fans. There's all these people having a great time. It's very glamorous in this nightclub. And it just really illustrates the difference in production values between a big name... Hollywood production in 2000 and this smaller potatoes British version from 40 years earlier. That was something that really struck me from Harold Ramis's commentary is you don't think about it necessarily, but like every little detail had to be designed and custom made and just all the thought that had to go into shooting it. I feel like you don't see this nearly as often nowadays as you used to like the high budget comedy Like he spent several minutes talking about everything they did. And we'll get to one like the basketball. There's a scene where Brendan Fraser needs to be really tall and like all the different force perspective stuff they needed to do. And like they had to make miniature versions of basketballs and basketball hoops to make Brendan Fraser look tall and hire short actors. And just like all this weird stuff that you don't even think about too much as it's happening because it's kind of part of the thing. But it really is impressive. All the effort that goes into the production values. Um, the head production designer is named Rick Heinrichs, and he uh, was also the head production designer of the 1999 Sleepy Hollow that we watched. And he actually won that Oscar for production design for Sleepy Hollow as this movie was being filmed because it was, of course, the next year. And the cinematographer is Bill Pope, who was shooting The Matrix right before he shot this. So there's some technical chops to 2000s bedazzled. Yeah, I mean, it's it's reasonably large profile. We talked about last time that Brendan Fraser was a pretty big star at one point. Like 1999, I think, was the first Mummy. So he was really at the height of his fame. You know, he was big enough that he didn't have to do George of the Jungle 2 in 2003. <laughs> but Elliot gets ready to start making his wishes. He does sign the contract and to kind of prove the bona fides of the devil, he's told he gets a test wish. And so what he wishes for first in both movies is, like, junk food. In the British one, he asks for a popsicle, which British people call ice lollies, which is one I really don't like to hear either. <laughs> you don't like that one? Yeah. No, I've, I've noticed on Wikipedia, at least back in the day, certain things are identified by their British name for whatever it is. Like, if you type in ice cream truck, at least it used to go to the article for ice cream van. 
And it said that ice cream vans sell ice lollies. <laughs> and he, I don't know, something about that just makes my skin crawl. It's like you've woken up in hell. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what he asks for. Elliot, of course, to get in the product placement, asks for a Big Mac. But in both cases, the devil escorts the protagonist in person, physically, out the door, down the street to the fast food joint, and then makes him pay for it himself. Doesn't even manifest it out of thin air and hand it to him. And the explanation is that there's no free lunches, which is going to foreshadow the way that other wishes will go. And also kind of exemplify why I don't like any of the quibbles in these movies. Because I think there's a lot implicit in the wish that if the devil were dealing in good faith, they would understand. And I, I guess the message is that they're the devil, so they're not going to do anything in good faith. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it more as we go and give some of these examples of quibbles. That's interesting, yeah. It's like if you take the classic Faustian one of you want to be rich, but the way you get rich is somebody dies and then you get an insurance payout. Like that one has a clear kind of undertone to it that you shouldn't love wealth. You should love people. But the ones here don't have that. <laughs> right. It works better if the what you get and the negative thing that happens are very connected. Like, one follows from the other. That's what's going to work best. Okay, yeah. And be the most uh, thematically rewarding, narratively fulfilling. Uh, but I didn't get that sense with a lot of these. Uh, an example I like to think of is in a movie called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. There's this old Irish guy who captures a leprechaun. And in that movie, leprechauns can grant wishes. And so he spends a lot of the movie thinking about what he's going to wish for. And talking about with his friends, oh, what would they wish for? And anything that the friends say, he counters with, well, but then this might happen. And an example that he says is one of the friends wishes for a big mansion. I want to have a big house. And he says, well, you know, you didn't wish for a staff to keep up the house. And you didn't wish for the money to maintain the house. So it would just fall apart over time. Like... I like it more when it's just something that you didn't think to ask for rather than something that's just intentionally there to screw you over. Interesting, yeah. No, I, I, that makes sense now that you talk it out. But Stanley and Elliot start making their wishes one by one, and each wish spawns the protagonist spontaneously, quantum leap style, into the midst of a scene that's going on in medias res. So, in other words, he assumes the role of a character who already exists in this world, whose identity and past he must then figure out. And in both movies, he's got an out, a way to warp back to his own existence if things don't go as planned for whatever reason. In the 60s version, he can blow a raspberry. So make a fart noise with his mouth, and that's what'll zoop him back to the present. And in the 2000 version, of course, he's got a beeper, a pager. And if he types 666 on the pager, that's what sends him back. Peak 2000, yeah. 
I kind of liked the one in the 1967 Bedazzled because you at least had like a minor element of comedy where you'd have some scene with some tension going on and then all of a sudden you'd have Dudley Moore start blowing raspberries out of the blue. Yeah, it was well-timed. It was usually funny when it would punctuate the scene and then he'd snap back. And in between each scene, whenever they jump back, they're met with the devil going about his day-to-day work, which involves committing, like, anarchic pranks, kind of Tyler Durden style. He's going around scratching up records in the record store and disabling traffic lights and causing parking meters to expire and things like that. So a lot of these are the same from movie to movie. So Peter Cook is going down the street expiring the parking meters and then elizabeth hurley's doing the same thing it's kind of a shallow view of evil it's like i think at least in the 1967 one this is at least somewhat satirical where what the devil does is just like petty annoyances not deeply evil things i don't know if the 2001 quite got that layer but you know it's like scratching up records at a record store is like not if you were to say what what is the devil out there doing if you're like thinking about it from a spiritual angle, it'd be like, I don't know, famine, starvation, disease, child abuse. But here it's just like they're doing stupid petty shit. It was halfway between funny and occasionally felt like it missed the point of the story it was trying to tell, at least in the 2001. That's interesting. I can kind of see that. But let's talk about some of these wishes now. So each one thrusts the protagonist into some new world or just some new state of affairs. And in every one, generally the core cast reappears in new roles and in new relationships. Some of the wishes are the same in both movies. For instance, I think the first one that he makes in both cases is to be rich, powerful, and married to the love interest. Except, but, she's cheating on him. They're married, but she doesn't love him. And because he's rich, you know, she's got, like, tutors. People teaching her tennis and uh, English lessons. Because also, in the 2000 version, Brendan Fraser kind of has the double twist that not only is he rich and powerful, he's also Pablo Escobar. (laughs) He's a Colombian drug lord with long, wavy hair and a big mustache. One thing I learned from the the Ramus commentary is that they hired not only a Spanish tutor for both Frasier and I forget the name of of the actress, but, but the actress who plays the love interest. But they also hired an accent specialist to make sure that when he spoke in Spanish, he did it in a Colombian way. And apparently they were worried that they were going to have to dub it, but they, there is actually no dubbing in any of the, the Spanish. It's all them speaking it. And he even like cuts to Russian at one point. And he actually learned uh, the Russian line there too. Interesting. Yeah, just for reference, when I first watched this movie around about 2003 probably, this is when I tuned in, when he's just starting to experience this first wish. And I thought it was so funny. The way that he walks into the scene and everybody around him is speaking Spanish. And the first thing he says is, I don't speak Spanish, but he says it in Spanish. 
and then he's like reveling in the fact that he can suddenly speak fluent Spanish, except the way that he's doing it is by reciting these grade school phrases. Like, Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> Good gag. And, yeah, I thought it was really funny. Um, maybe not quite as funny on the revisit, but this is something that had me cracking up as a 13-year-old. No, I still thought that, that at least that gag was pretty funny. Um, another thing from the Ramus commentary is, as they were shooting this, one aspect of it is they were trying to appease the kind of legendary British comedians who, you know, had fond memories of the Pete and Dud team and like wanted to make sure that the the new version honored that. And so they showed a daily of this to John Cleese. And he said that Cleese found this specific gag very funny. It was his, the, he laughed hard at that. So we're not alone in, in liking this one. Good, good. But yeah, she doesn't love him. Also with Brendan Fraser, like, there's a coup. One of his lieutenants tries to seize power. And then the Colombian military, I think, gets involved. There's explosions and guns everywhere. Just another example of how everything is bigger and more expensive in this version. And so this obviously isn't what the character wants. And they snap back to reality. Yeah. By the way, the budget for Bedazzled in 2000 was $48 million, which is... According to a calculator, I just plugged in $83 million today, which is like, that's like an action movie budget. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we get some actiony stuff, especially in that wish. Right. I, there's helicopters and stuff. He also has full different makeup and hairstyle in each of the different wishes. Yeah. This was making me laugh this time because he's also trying to do a very different performance every time, like really be a different person. And sometimes maybe it lands better than others, but usually it was making me laugh. Yeah. But even when it's funny, I felt like that also undercut the point of the story. Like if he becomes himself a different person, I don't know. It's like I was trying to connect that to the point of the story. It's like he's actually a Colombian drug lord here. This one, at least he kind of resembles sort of the geekiness and cluelessness. But in some of the other ones, it seems like the witches, the wishes change his personality. Not just, like, his circumstances, but his actual, you know, maybe his soul. Like, the things that make him this character. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. And I think it highlights how a lot of things that would seem implicit in the wishes are kind of gone against. Like, you wouldn't assume that he wants to completely change. He wants to be him in those situations. Not some different guy. Uh, some other wishes that are in common between the two films... He wishes to be very articulate and well-spoken and knowledgeable. But in the British version, the girl is like very attracted to his mind, but then recoils when he tries to touch her. Like she doesn't like him that way. She just respects him. And then, of course, not doesn't anymore once he makes a move. But in the 2000 version... The twist is that Brendan Fraser is gay. He's very urbane and, again, articulate and popular, but the twist is he's not a heterosexual. And the way this twist is revealed is like they're going to the bedroom and in Brendan Fraser's bed already is just the worst caricature of a gay person that I've ever seen in a movie. 
just like you, you couldn't have made maybe four years after this, maybe six years after this. Yeah. At the same time, I don't know. I thought the twist here worked a little bit better than the twist in the original. I thought they intentionally tried to take it in a different way that kind of followed a little bit better and felt a little more ironic to me. Yeah, I like the reveal when he, he kisses her and then he's like, oh, damn, I am gay. But at that point, so I was like, well, then don't undo it. You got it made. You're rich. You're famous. You're happily in love with someone. It's just not the person you expected it to be. Why go back? Why dial the 666? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's something to that if your feelings really have changed. But he dials the number on the pager and he, he comes back. One other thing that's in common between the two, he hits on the idea that what his love interest wants is a sensitive man. I don't know if they read the diary in both or just the newer one, but it's something like that. And he's going to try to be sensitive. And in 67, the twist is that Margaret, the woman, is already married and she is too emotionally sensitive to hurt her husband. She, she's not going to cause him that pain and so they can't be together and they break down crying about that. But in the Brendan Fraser version, he's so sensitive that he just can't cope with anything. And I like his outfit in this. He's got like curly red hair and green contacts and he's wearing this big oversized sweater and like Birkenstocks. Well, go go ahead and talk a little about this scene, Dan. Yeah, I like this scene. He made me think of Matthew Lillard in this scene. The guy in Scream, he's, he's also uh, shaggy. Um, just something broad about the way he's doing it that made me think of Matthew Lillard. And I think like the lighter hair made him, brought out the similarities in their facial structure. But my favorite gag here is they're talking at a beach and sunset and three times, I, I saw the movie three times, so I was able to count. Three times he turns to the sunset and when he sees the sunset, he's so moved by its beauty, he starts crying. And for me, this was a gag that got funnier because it happened repetitively, you know? Uh-huh. This was the other time when I first tuned in that I was just cracking up because he says, well, you know... I was writing a song about the dolphins, but then I was struck by the sunset and I had to stop and <laughs> weep. And yeah, my I watched this one with my dad and he doesn't laugh out loud at a lot, but he was cracking up at this part. Nice. There's a few wishes that are specific to the versions. And it's kind of interesting to see which ones those are. But in the 60s version... Something that's kind of unique is that in the real world scenes that he keeps snapping back to, remember that he tried to kill himself. And it almost seems like this is a timeline where maybe he succeeded because the police are investigating. Like, oh, what caused him to kill himself? But he's wondering how that's going and he wishes he could be a fly on the wall kind of in passing, oh, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that scenario. And then, sure enough, the devil hears him, and then there's this interesting animated segment where he is a fly on the wall. We have some cool visual design, really in both films. We, the 2000 one, we talked about the production value sticking out. But I thought there was just some really good direction in the 1967 one, and I looked up Stanley Donan, the director, 
this is the guy who made Singing in the Rain. He made Charade. So he's like a legit director. Wow. <clears throat> but I like this little animated bit. That was kind of fun. Yeah. And he wishes to be a famous pop star. And as I mentioned, this is in the era of the Beatles popularity. So very much the British invasion idea of what a rock star is. But the twist here is that, as is often the case with celebrities, his fame only lasts a very brief time. Like everybody's obsessed with his performance, but then almost immediately they're obsessed with a different musical act. And in this movie, the 60s one, it's the devil who shows up in every scene in some prominent role, playing another character against Dudley Moore as Stanley being somebody new in every wish. Uh, but in this one, the rival rocker is the devil. And I thought it was cool that the Dudley Moore character is singing about kind of in a Beatles-y style, just a more traditional pop style of the era and he's singing about oh, you should love me everyone love me uh, but then what he gets replaced by in terms of popularity the group that usurps him is peter cook in this psychedelic sequence singing about how apathetic he is about everything that nothing moves him i'm filled with inertia and, like, it's genuinely creepy, this show that he puts on. Like, it's got psychedelic video effects, and you see him on the various monitors that are, like, flashing subliminally. It's pretty weird and, and striking. I thought this was a particularly satirical uh, wish little sketch. It was, like, breaking down about, breaking down what the changes in popular music are saying about how weird culture is getting nowadays and like i don't know just kind of parodying that that change in musical style yeah also pretty british but the last version specific wish that we get is just the peak moment of the britishness of the humor and it's i think the wish is that he wants to be very in love with margaret and he wants to have margaret be very in love with him and there's some more provisos on it that they want to like live far away from the big city and just in a peaceful environment and yada 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 and what he gets served with is that they're both nuns in a convent and they can't act on their attraction because they're both women apparently <laughs> and that would be sinful but we never see him as a woman. We always see him with Dudley Moore's face. In Quantum Leap, they would have had him look in a mirror and you would have seen the woman at one point. Uh. That's generally how Quantum Leap worked. I, I thought they should have had a shot like that, but they, they never do. They just say a couple times that he's a woman and you have to put it together. Yeah. Yeah, it took me a minute. I was like, why is he in a nun costume? And nobody seems to think this is weird. But it gets... It gets goofier than that, and apparently this is a sketch borrowed from their sketch comedy show, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, because the sect that the nuns have, it's like the, the Order of Leaping Barillions, and they're dedicated to St. Beryl. Well, not a saint. She hasn't been canonized, so this is like a, what do they call it, when it's not officially in the Bible, apocryphal. 
It's like an apocryphal sect. And this person was supposedly lifted off to heaven. She ascended. And so every day they go out into the fields and they jump on a giant trampoline to try to reach heaven or just imitate Beryl in that way. Very silly. Felt like some things were lost in translation, but I could see this being a lower end Monty Python bit. Yeah, I thought of Monty Python too. As far as what's just in the newer version... One of the scenes you've talked a little bit about, he wishes to be a famous athlete. And so in this world, he's a basketball star and he's just enormous. I think they say he's like almost eight feet tall or something. Seven foot six is the number. Seven foot six. Okay. Yeah. You watched it three times. You would know. (laughs) But a lot of cool force perspective stuff because they really do make him look giant. I just thought it was so cool that they they like did the math out to figure out how much they would need to change the size of things by percentage. And they made custom basketballs and custom basketball hoops to make Brendan Fraser actually look that tall relative to the things that he had. And they had two casts of basketball players, short ones for the close ups and tall ones for the long shots that they they cut back and forth between. And. There's like one shot where this is the forced perspective you're talking about, where the love interest is talking to him. And as soon as it got pointed out in Ramus's commentary, I, I was able to see it this way. But you don't think about it until it's pointed out. He's standing much closer to the camera and she's standing far away, but it's on like a flat plane and they're facing each other. So it looks like from a 2D perspective, they're just looking straight at each other. But really, they were like six feet apart laterally, but like acting like they're talking to each other, which I think is it's just very clever. Yeah, that's cool. Old school special effects, something they also used in Darby O'Gill. Nice. But in this one is probably when I most notice that his personality changes each time, because as the basketball player, he's really dumb. He like doesn't he finds that he doesn't understand a lot of things and he has this redneck way of speaking and the failure of this one is partially what inspires him to make the articulate wish. But the quibble in this one is that he has a tiny dick. Gets everything he wanted, but also a small penis. Which is just totally emblematic for me of the way the twists work in this movie. It's like, I'm pretty sure you could have gathered from his wish that he didn't want to have a small penis. It's no way related to him being the sports star, although they could have done something with, oh, he's like a baseball player shot up with roids or something. And that's why, you know, would have been easy enough. Oh, I like that. But no, it's just Allison is into him until he takes off his sports towel in the locker room and then, oop, tiny penis. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of double entendres with size and stuff going on there. This is the one where... Brendan Fraser's performance actually impressed me because he's just unhinged in this role. So like I didn't even recognize him as Brendan Fraser almost because he's like they have they have some prosthetic makeup and then he's changed his hair. But you're right, like the way he talks, like Brendan Fraser normally comes off as like kind of a soft spoken gentle fellow. And here he's like really aggressive. Also in this one, the co-workers that are always showing up are the sports casters. So they're announcing during his big game, which might be the most they speak in some of these. Although I guess in the 
drug lord one, they were his lieutenants, and so they had a lot to do there. Yeah, I feel like they had a decent amount to do relative to what it could have been. Like that actually probably would have been pretty fun. To, like I don't know. In this one, you're the sportscaster. In this one, you're the lieutenant drug lord. In this one, you're at a fancy dinner party. In this one, you're John Wilkes Booth, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah, you said it. Because one of the last ones that he makes is he wants to be the leader of... Well, I guess he says he directly that he wants to be president of the United States. And it's in the name of him becoming a little more altruistic. He wants to serve people. He thinks that's going to be what, what works well. So a little bit of that changing mindset that we saw in like Groundhog Day, but not done as well. But he says, okay, well, I can, you know, clean things up. I can make the world a better place if I were president. Only he's Abraham Lincoln on the night of his assassination. And this to me felt very much like one of the many Twilight Zone episodes that involves making wishes. There's one that I think a guy finds a genie. And one of the wishes that he makes is he wants to be the leader of a powerful country, are his words. And then suddenly he's Hitler. Oh, man. And that one actually got parodied in Futurama. They're watching The Scary Door, which shows up a few times as a Twilight Zone parody. Only that episode is like four things mashed together, four different episodes. And so the guy's like, there's a gremlin on the wing of the airplane. You have to believe me. And then the stewardess says, why should I believe you? You're Hitler. <laughs> nice but in both versions of the movie suddenly the protagonist is getting to the end of his tally of wishes only to find out he actually has one fewer remaining than he thought because the devil is holding his so-called test wish against him that fast food that he got that counted as a wish apparently in the 2001 they actually shot a whole other segment that they ended up cutting. And that was Brendan Fraser as like a hard rock, rock and roll guy. So I think, I guess that one's playing off the musician one from the British one. Or it could have been almost a little bit from that one you were talking about, maybe. Oh yeah, Airheads. Yeah. I don't know how that would have worked with the tally of the wishes though, because you're right. That's kind of like a key point. But the biggest divergence is the film's ending, because if you've been keeping track in your head, We've discussed seven wishes in the British one, but only six in the American. So he's got one left still in the U.S. in 2000. And he's debating what he's going to do. I think he goes to a church and Bill Murray's brother, Brian Doyle Murray, is there as a priest. So one connective thread shared with Groundhog Day. In that one, he plays the uh, Punxsutawney Phil announcer on Gobbler's Knob. Ah. But the priest asks him what's troubling him, and he goes on this unhinged declaration about all the supernatural adventures he's been having. And so he gets hauled off to jail and thrown in the drunk tank. And this is when we get Elizabeth Hurley in the sexy cop outfit. She's the jailer. But something that's not in the old one, in his cell... Brendan Fraser meets this guy who is either God or just an angel. This cellmate character who has some 
philosophical things to say. He says that actually nobody can sell their soul because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And this is inspirational for Brendan Fraser so that when he gets sprung from the drunk tank the next morning, he walks out, meets up with Elizabeth Hurley again, and he says he's ready to make his final wish. And what he wishes for is that Allison will have a happy life. Irrespective of his fate, that things turn out well for her and she's happy in the life that she leads. A couple of things here. I, uh, I really like this actor who plays the angel. So according to the commentary, was frequently mistaken for God, but was supposed to just be a normal angel. And apparently they had kind of cast a older fellow, kind of like your stereotypical white beard vision of God. And they didn't, they thought it wasn't working. And so they told their casting agent, bring in people who have weird energies. We want to see like different energy levels here. And this is the first guy they brought in where he's kind of like, Got a very cherubic face and but also like just intense gaze, but very nice. And I, I thought I, I liked his three minutes of screen time or whatever it is here. So I think that was a, a good choice. Definitely. So I kind of skipped over the way that the original one ends, the 1967 version. It's pretty weird, but the devil has mentioned a few times and increasingly towards the end that he is in a battle with God at, to see who can first claim a hundred billion souls, which to me was just a crazy number. You'll know perhaps that now I think the population of Earth is either right at eight billion or just about to eight billion. And a lot of the people who have ever lived live now because generally speaking, population goes up. So I wasn't sure that there had ever been 100 billion people in total. I looked at a few estimates preparing for this episode. It sounds like actually a fair estimate that there have been just over 100 billion. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this offline, Brian. Um, I majored in math and it was not uncommon for us to have like thought exercises to like help us think about our math reasoning at the start of these math courses, like in the first week or whatever. And one that I really recall distinctly is how many people do you think have ever lived? And it turns out it's really hard to guess that. And like most mathematical models would say a, a number that's like in the realm of double the number of people who are alive right now. But because of like the change in the way that communities worked and especially lifespans, most historians think the number is way higher, like in the realm of 100 million or something like that. So, yeah, it's one of those maybe unsolved mysteries or kind of unknowable things about our, our species past. Right. So that's what he's going for is 100 billion souls. He thinks he's ahead, but hasn't gotten to 100 billion yet. I was wondering how long it was going to take. By the end of the movie, apparently he's there. He just suddenly gets notice. Oh, I did it. Got to 100 billion. This threw me off even more because I think he says at one point early in the movie that he's at 96 billion. And then he's at 100 billion by the end. That's like half the Earth's population dying. If that's how you got there. So that that threw me off even more than the raw 100 million total. It's like there's maybe a backstory here that there's an apocalypse going on where half the Earth is dying. You, you <laughs> 
You keep going back and forth between saying a million and a billion. Okay, billion is the number. Anytime I said million, it was supposed to be billion. You'll dub it over. You'll do some ADR. No. <laughs> the, the viewers can know my idiocy, but whenever I said million, it was billion. And I said viewers, didn't I? The listeners will know my, my idiocy. <laughs> just piling on myself here. But yeah, he's just suddenly done with his quest and he's feeling so magnanimous about it that he's going to let Dudley off the hook. Stanley doesn't have to go to hell because he suddenly has his hundred billion souls. And what I thought was really strange is that if he wins this wager, the devil gets to go back to heaven, which didn't seem like something that he wanted to do in the start. He gave reasons why he didn't want to live in heaven. He said it was obnoxious and he didn't like it there. But off he goes back up to heaven. Stanley's just suddenly off the hook. And the devil gets to the pearly gates and he says to St. Peter how good he feels about having done a generous act for once in his existence. And I thought St. Peter was going to say, oh, well, that goes against the terms of your job, devil. You're not supposed to save anybody. You have a specific mission, which is to damn people. But that's not what he says. He says, oh, it's good that you do good things, but you just did this to feel good, to feel pride in yourself, and that's sinful. So you can't come into heaven. And it ends with the devil being agitated and angry about that and shaking his fist at Stanley. I thought this missed the mark. It really felt off to me for a way to end what we had set up so far. Yeah, it was a strange ending, for sure. But in the 2000 version, he makes the selfless wish. He wants Allison to be happy. And this feels like a more earned ending in terms of why Elliot doesn't have to follow through with the full terms of the contract. As far as an escape clause to get him out, this makes sense to me. Although, as he awakens back in his normal reality with this last wish having been granted... He encounters Allison at work, and he finally has the courage to ask her out and finds that true to his wish, she has found happiness with someone other than him. So she's already in a relationship. And he kind of says, oh, shucks, and heads off down the street, but is still overall happy for the way things that have turned out. And then he randomly meets the Allison actress again in a different role. And this one is single they hit it off and he goes off into her place to help her move in so there's this whole second bonus consolation allison for him which was just really weird to me it's like they wanted to have both possible endings at once have their cake and also eat it yeah ramus talked a little bit about this in his commentary he said that they initially had an in early drafts that allison and brendan fraser got together at the end but it bothered them because they didn't want to send the message that people who do good things get what they want. In fact, that's like a skew from the message they are trying to tell. But they also wanted a happy ending. So they came to this, like you said, compromise ending where it's a little have your cake and eat it too. So, oh, he what he wanted was he, he's good things still came to him, just not in the way that he expected. He ended up finding someone who was really more appropriate for for him 
who just so happens to look exactly like the person that he had been lusting for afar. Yeah, my fix for this is just to have literally anyone else play the part. He just meets some other woman. I can see that. Did you have any alternate rewrites in mind? Yeah, I do. So here's, I have a rewrite of the 2000 version. So here's my rewrite. Well, first of all, another thing about why this is kind of a goofy ending is there's this thing where, uh, this effect in the intro and the outro where it shows like blurry figures who are the people in the commotion of their everyday life and then zooms in on specific people and like says what their sins are. And I think the idea is like, we're supposed to see them the way the devil would see them is like, I don't know. I don't even know exactly what they're trying to pull off. And then the, the last one, you see Brendan Fraser kissing Mirror Allison, this new person who's the same actress, and they don't care that they're flawed. They're still happy to be together. And you can also see in that shot, there's a Buddhist monk sitting on a bench. And the Ramus said the reason he put this in here is because he wanted to make clear that this wasn't supposed to be a Christian theology. He wanted it to be a sort of secular humanist with just a touch of Buddhism in it, which like I think is giving the screenplay too much credit. Like, I don't think there's really much of a philosophy in the screenplay at all. There was some of that in the opening, the opening credits. It's a bunch of scenes from all over the world of people bustling through different cities and it like zooms in on different people and has little bullet points that say what their sins are. And it's always something menial. It's like a quirk, you know, like they're a couch potato. It's never that they're a murderer. Right. Like I would say that's not really a sin. It's like a slightly undesirable personality trait. It's like double dips their chips or something. It's like, okay. I mean, that's, that's not really a, I mean, I guess maybe that's a minor sin if you like you're passing germs around, but. In no common assumption would this lead to you going to hell. Yeah. So my, in case, I've, I know I've made this obvious, my take is like anything about the moral redemption part of 2000 doesn't work. And everything that does work is Elizabeth Hurley being uh, funny and beautiful and actually having really good chemistry with Brendan Fraser. So here's my proposed rewrite is like at the start, of the movie really play up the wholesomeness of Allison and how she's like the good, kind, nice girl. And then in much of the movie be the same, but like in these intermissions where we have the devil causing all the mischief, Brendan Fraser kind of like casually helps out like, Oh, he tears up this or that, or he scratches one of the records or something like that. And then maybe in each of the fantasies, he somehow makes that, version of reality slightly worse like maybe in the one where he's a writer maybe he shoots down some other writer and then in those intermission segments maybe elizabeth hurley is growing increasingly fond of brendan fraser's character and making jokes i missed you while you were a basketball player or something like that and so we're still going to have him declining to use his last wish and much less of the moral awakening and the threatening of internal damnation and all that. And instead of having it be like, oh, don't think about yourself, think about others, have it be more of like Groundhog Day, live life in the moment. And you can still have something similar where like maybe a slight variation on it, but breaking the contract, oh, he refused the last wish. So that that uh, breaks the contract. And so Elizabeth Hurley is mad, but she's not she's not too bad. She's just disappointed mostly. 
And so then now Brandon Fraser is free to live his life and he knows he needs to live life in the moment. So he needs to go and ask out Allison, which he does. And she says, yes. And he goes out with her, but now he's finding her niceness, all the stuff that he kind of admired at the start, really annoying. And he's doing stuff like laughing at people falling or bad stuff happening to people. And he, what we realize as an audience is that over the course of this movie, Brendan Fraser has actually become a worse and worse person, kind of like invert the, the moral awakening into like a moral darkening or something like that. And then he realizes that he actually misses the devil. He wants to be more like the devil. So he calls out Elizabeth Hurley reappears and he proclaims his last wish. I wish to rule my own personal hell with you by my side. And she gets a happy look and kisses him that they're going to be together. And then it does a smash cut. But of course, there still needs to be something off about the wish. So it like cuts to some version of hell and Elizabeth Hurley is sitting on the throne and I'm imagining Brendan Fraser in like a red devil gimp suit with like a chain and a, a collar uh, with Elizabeth Hurley holding him on a leash and he's down on all fours like a dog and he kind of does like the shrugs and says good enough. It's kind of like a nobody's perfect type closer. So that those are my changes. One, Brendan Fraser ends up with the devil instead of some random nice girl. Two, it, it, he doesn't learn to be a good person. He learns to be a bad person. Bad person. And three, he ends up in hell in some sort of demeaning role with the devil by his side. That's my proposal rewrite for Dazzled. I like that. In both films, he does emphasize that the devil has become his friend and actually his best friend because he started out with no friends. Yeah. Like he, he is kind of coming around on the devil having a valuable role. I, I like that beat a lot. I want more of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would watch that. And I think he had better chemistry with Elizabeth Hurley than with any of the other actors. Yeah. Elizabeth Hurley is really good. Definitely good marks for her for a number of reasons. Uh, but the performance is genuinely funny. And she draws the attention whenever she's on screen. So I think we're ready now to pass judgment. Is Bedazzled good? So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good. That is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating, a tour de good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, I guess I'll answer the question first. Is Bedazzled good? Do you want me to do both? Should I just do one of them and then you do that and then we go do the other one? What do you think? Yeah, I guess let's start with the old one. OK, 1967. So. I'm going to say that the 1967 Bedazzled is good-ish. So that is a four out of eight. Not quite good, but good-ish. Although I talked a little bit less about it, but I think this movie has much sharper writing. It, I very much had the sensation as I was watching it, like a, one of the characters would make a joke. It would be like a bit of wordplay or like some some gag. And then it would like the next line would come. And I'd be like, hold on a second. I'm still processing that joke. Okay, that was actually pretty funny. It was just like very fast paced, very satirical, very witty, lots of dry humor. You know, no Elizabeth Hurley, which is a major downside. But I just thought this one was really sharp in terms of the writing. And the the sketches were of mixed quality. I, I kept wanting to get back to the, the devil. That's a theme across both of them, as I tended to enjoy the, those intermission segments more than the actual sketches themselves. But it was kind of you know, it was kind of impressive to see like this wide variety of stuff. So, you know, I, I 
the ending didn't do much for me and I was a little checked out the whole time just because I, I never bought into the story, like caring about Dudley Moore, whatever. What is he going to do? I, I mean, I didn't care what happened to him. So a little checked out, but still very funny. So I'm going to say good-ish. What about you, Brian? So the last few episodes, I feel like I've been kind of down on the movies we've been watching. I haven't given out a whole lot of high ratings, so maybe I'm a little biased towards the downward slant right now. I've had kind of a weird week, kind of some extreme ups and extreme downs in rapid vacillation, oscillation. This one for me, I'm going to put at a three out of eight, which we have called a not not good. And that's largely because of the ending kind of taking things off the rails for me. It didn't seem like where the story should have gone. The hundred billion souls thing and the devil just kind of abandoning everything else that's going on at the last minute felt very odd and yeah different qualities to the bits there are some different interesting stylistic experiments i wasn't expecting the animated sequence the opening credits is like a kaleidoscope it's just this rapidly spinning view of the city so it was almost making me sick but definitely memorable and it's really that i mean it's a lower production value thing I respect it for originating a lot of the ideas because really quite a bit is the same beat for beat between the two movies in terms of what is said and done. I like the actors broadly. I think Peter Cook is the best here playing the devil. He's pretty funny and thoughtful and it makes sense to me that he wrote the film. But that's where I'm at. What about the 2000 remake, Dan? So I think this one probably suffered a little bit because I had seen the 1967 version. There's a line from Parks and Recreation that I think about a lot. So there's like a, a fake newscaster in Parks and Rec, and his name is Purd Happily. And in one interview, somebody makes a joke and he says, I don't know what you mean, but it had the cadence of a joke. And he kind of laughs along. And I think about that, had the cadence of a joke. It's a phrase I really like. And I think major portions of this movie, I would put it, had the cadence of a joke, but like did not make me laugh. Like I laughed very little at this movie. And most of them came from some line delivery by Elizabeth Hurley. And man, she's awesome in this. Uh, but I think this one also suffers from the Groundhog Day comp. Like it's clearly striving to be more of a moral story that just does not connect at all no sense of what the character actually is or like what the growth is supposed to be for me. Some fun performances, really fun production values. Overall, I came away a little more bitter on it though. And despite watching it three times, you know, never really grew that fond of it. Um, I'm going to give this one actually the three. I'm going to say the not, not good on this one. Points bumped up because of the performance of the devil. Actually a good performance. And the production values really it's just fun to watch like a high budget well-made blockbuster comedy I, I just think that's fun to watch um but not enough for it to really approach goodness at all so um that's where i am what about you brian it's a flip-flop for me this one lands just a hair higher than the older one i'm gonna give it a four out of eight good ish and i do really like the casting of elizabeth hurley I'm not always the biggest fan of gender swaps or just changing the demographics of a character just to do it. 
Although I think it works here. They did mention in both movies that the devil has the ability to shapeshift and take on many different forms, which is kind of a theme of the whole story is having one character appear in many different forms. So I, I like that. And she really is electric in her performance, uh, funny and beautiful and sharp. And I think they took some rough edges of the original and kind of sanded them down, made it a little bit more aerodynamic in its narrative arc. Specifically, I think of the ending. It just feels a little more polished, a little less abrupt here. Having him make the selfless wish, and that's what voids the contract, that works for me. And uh, the other example, I guess... <laughs> Obviously, the, the gay reveal is very broad and, and wouldn't work today, but it just seemed to follow a little bit more from the premise of the wish and having it be the ironic twist than what they did in the British version. So that's it. It's not a huge difference, just a little bit more in my memory. Maybe some of this is nostalgia. I still laughed at the two biggest moments that I remembered from the original, which is him crying at the sunset and the suddenly speaking Spanish. They're good ones, yeah. But there's a lot of movie left after that point. Right. Not a masterpiece. Not Groundhog Day. But nice to spend some more time with Brendan Fraser. And so, Dan, with that ending, now that we've passed judgment and consigned the movies to their respective afterlives, what comes next? So, Brian, if we can get the logistics worked out, our next two episodes will be guest episodes. So first, we're going to have a new guest we've never had before, and he is someone I met online on a, a film discussion forum, and his name is Gavin. So uh, we'll be talking with Gavin about a movie, and then I think the next episode will be another guest episode with my brother Will coming back for a third time. He is back in the States. Yeah, listeners will recall he's from Japan, but It'll be good to have him back on the pod. So um, he'll probably be with me in person when we record that one. So very different from when he'd been all the way across the world. So Exciting. Do you know yet what we'll be watching? Yes. So next week, I think we'll be watching a 1997 film called Destiny. And it's about a writer, I think from the 12th century, a uh, topic I really don't know anything about yet. I haven't done much to look up this movie or prepare for that episode yet. I'll be hosting it, of course, with the guest, but um, we'll see. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Thanks, as always, for joining me, Dan. You're a constant presence in my life for good. And hopefully our podcast is that for you, listeners. Bye, everyone. Have a good one, Brian. Join us next time. Mm -hmm.